0: Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors.
1: Hey, everyone, Mark Bianchi here from the Cowen Energy team with another installment of our Energy Transition podcast series, where we're now focusing on nuclear power and small modular reactors. Today, I'm joined by John McQuarrie and Joe Miller from BWXT. John is president of Commercial Operations, which includes BWXT Canada, and Joe is president of Advanced Technologies, which includes Project Pele and the company's efforts in Advanced Fuels, among other things. So gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Maybe before we get into the the questions, you could each kind of introduce yourselves in a little more detail and and give us an overview of kind of what your uh, responsibilities are.
2: Hey Mark, it's great to be joining you. So uh, just by way of introduction, BWXT reports in two segments, government operations and commercial operations. And as you said, uh, my role as president of the commercial operation business, and uh, maybe just a little bit about myself. So I've been in the uh, the nuclear industry for about 27 years, 24 which with BWXT. My background is engineering, focused on nuclear power, Uh, working in the Canadian market, but also U.S., Europe, Asia. Um, My experience is is in the Canadian market.
0: So it's a little bit about me. Joe? Yeah, thank you, Mark. This is Joe Miller. Advanced Technologies is part of government operations based out of Lynchburg, Virginia. My background: I started my career on a submarine, the USS Norfolk, and then uh, moved into shipyard and shipbuilding for the Virginia class submarine fleet. And spent about six years in the high-tech manufacturing industry in the semiconductor market. Joined BWXT 11 years ago. Started off as in test engineering and moved into advanced technologies about five years ago. But we've been able to build up a portfolio, starting with few million in R&D back in 2017, to about 100 million dollars in revenue this year, and really focusing on advanced reactors with our marquee program being the Pele microreactor for the Department of Defense, and also focusing on space reactors both for propulsion and power.
1: Great. That's a great overview. Maybe um, as we keep going with sort of the high level stuff, and maybe John, you can comment on this, like BWXT's role kind of in the commercial nuclear business. Can you talk about what are the key areas where you participate there? And what are the relative sizes of those businesses, just so people can get a sense of how impactful they can be for the company?
2: Yeah, sure, Mark. So uh, part of our business is the design and manufacture of components for nuclear power plants. We also do the same for a variety of other equipment, and perhaps we'll get into that in detail a little bit later. But you can imagine that there's a need for all kinds of heat exchangers and equipment that's designed to fuel reactors. And so we're involved in in a lot of that. We're also providing services, which include engineering services and field services for maintaining components in, in nuclear power plants. So it's a kind of a full service capability that we offer. We do that largely in the Canadian market for the the can-do technology and also can-do reactors around the world, but we also participate in the nuclear power uh, business in uh, non candu markets. So we provided the uh, replacement components of pressurized water reactors in, in the U.S., for example. The other part of our business in the commercial division is nuclear medicine business. And so there we uh, manufacture radioisotopes and radiopharmaceuticals for various nuclear medicine customers, and we provide those around
1: the world. And as you think about growth, which again, we're going to talk to in him- more detail, but just to sort of set the table, what are kind of the top couple growth opportunities for you? Maybe if you would rank them from sort of most impactful.
2: Sure. Yeah. When you look at our two market segments, maybe I'll start first with nuclear medicine. I think that's a tremendous growth opportunity that we've got. It's public information that we are launching a, uh, a new product line to manufacture technetium 99 generators. And so we're, we're working through that and very excited about, about launching that soon. But then we also have a, a group of pipeline-type products, so radioisotopes and pharmaceuticals that we're developing, that each one has you know, really, I think, exciting uh, growth opportunities. One of the big areas that we're focused on uh, in addition to diagnostic uh, products therapeutic products, which is a really growing, fast growing part of the nuclear medicine markets. That's definitely one of our biggest areas of growth. And then in the power business, there's really two things that are driving growth there. First, we're in the midst of really significant investment in the Canadian market for extending the life of of reactors. And that's been ongoing for a while and will continue for a while. And it's really driving a lot of demand for products and services. And the other, I think even more exciting part of of our business is the potential for new reactors and particularly small modular reactors. And we're seeing a lot of activity in that area. And so I I would rank that as a significant growth opportunity.
1: Yeah, maybe. So starting with the Canadian market, so you mentioned the the role in in the Candu reactor, maybe talk about a little bit, just the history of the company's involvement in the Canadian market. I think you acquired the GE Hitachi business in Canada a few years back. So what did that, where were you before that? What did that do for you? And sort of what's the main involvement with, with Candu from here?
2: Yeah, so maybe just very briefly, a little bit about the the Canadian market overall. It's about a $17 billion annual market, so pretty good size, all all, including operations in the whole supply chain. About 19 reactors, most of those are in the province of Ontario, so heavily concentrated there, all can-do type uh, reactors. And, you know, right now, like I said, we're seeing really significant investment in, in life extension in 10 of those reactors, so about $26 billion being invested over the next 10 years or so. And that's ongoing, you know, so we're seeing a lot of demand from that. Our role, traditionally, we operated as a designer, manufacturer of components and a service provider on those components. But as you said, in the, we did acquire the GE Hitachi nuclear energy business. So that got us into manufacture of fuel. So we supply fuel for, uh, for 10 reactors here in, in Canada. They also brought us the OEM status for the very unique on-power refueling system for the candy reactors. So candy reactors are, are unique in that they're the only commercial reactors that are refueled while they operate. They don't have to shut down to refuel, and that gives them a really interesting ability to it'll be able to operate for longer cycles. And in fact, some of the Canadian reactors have set records for the longest operating cycles. So that gives them some benefit. Maybe just a little bit more about the Candu technology. It's, it's natural uranium, so simple fuel, lower cost fuel than, than most reactors. They said long operating cycles and quite high flux, neutron flux reactors. So really good for producing isotopes. And for, for many decades, most of the cobalt-60, which is used for sterilization, has been made in, in Canadian can-do reactors. And now these reactors are launching into tech, magnesium, you know isotope creation Tcm and other things and so pretty exciting for uh, that part of, of the use of these reactors.
1: What are the limitations if any for CANDU when I think about other reactor technologies that that are I'm sticking with the conventional side here so mostly light water reactors and not talking about the advanced reactor designs yet.
2: Yeah, so limitations for CANDU I would say are I think with natural uranium fuel, you have the advantages that I talked about, which low cost, but you're not enriching. And so you, you've got a little less power that you, you can get out of a kilogram of fuel. Okay. So that can be a limitation. More, Most of the advanced reactors are going to a higher levels of enrichment. So beyond 5%. So that's a challenge. And I think the other challenge that Candu faces is the complexity of the reactor. It is, as I said, it's a on power refueling. And it's, so that creates some complexity in how you operate it. And that can drive costs a little bit higher. And so I think those are the two biggest challenges that the candy wrappers face.
1: Is there much growth outside of Canada for this technology? Can you kind of talk to that? And then, what's the application, if any, in any of these SMR designs?
2: So in terms of the growth outside of Canada, the biggest opportunity right now is that, as I mentioned, uh, the life extension work that's going on in Canada is is going to be uh, moving international here. So if you think about the can-dos that are located in sort of Korea and China and in Europe and Romania, they're going to go through that same need to to have a major replacement of their their components. And so that's going to drive quite a bit of demand in that market. And then in terms of potential new build, there is a significant effort ongoing right now in Romania to build two new uh, can do plants there. They've already got two units there, but they're looking at adding two more. And so that could be a really significant uh, development. And between the Romanian government and their, their nuclear utility there and a number of banks, including the USXM Bank, there's a great deal of effort put together financing for those projects and to, to define those projects right now. So that would be the largest opportunity from a can do perspective. And then the second part of your question on. SMRs. I think that you know the Can Do technology is scalable. So there are designs that go down as, as small as 300 megawatts. But at this moment, we don't really see that the, the technology is being taken in that direction. So right now the can do technology is uh, licensed by SNC Lavalin from the, the government of Canada and it's operated in a division of SNC called Can Do Energy. And so they are really the the stewards of that technology, and obviously that's up to them to really describe what their are Going to do with it. But for what we can see, I think looking at what they're doing, they're not out there marketing an SMR version of the CANDU reactor. I think they're more focused on these, the markets that I've talked about previously.
1: And maybe switch over to light water technology with the GE Hitachi small modular design. So they've got this BWRX 300, which my understanding is that stands for boiling water reactor number 10 and it's 300 megawatts so you know it's a it's an extension of a prior design that they had maybe before we get into all of that correct me if i'm wrong on this presumption that that's outside of GE Hitachi Canada this is a this is GE Hitachi globally and they would be a partner or a customer, but there's nothing in-house at BWXT that is, is involved in this technology, right?
2: That's correct, Mark. Yeah, so it's uh, being driven by G Itachi, uh, out, of, out of Wilmington. They do have a Canadian entity that is leading this effort for the Canadian market, but separate from BWXT. Now we do have agreements with G Itachi, So they have been selected by Ontario Power Generation to cooperate, to work together, to deploy this BWRX 300 technology at the Darlington site, which is, is kind of the flagship a location for Ontario Power Generation where they've got four candy reactors, but they've got a good site to locate this GE SMR at that site. And in terms of our role there, we've announced that we've got an agreement with GE to work collaborative to deploy the BWRX-300 at that site, and and our role is really around the design and manufacture of the the reactor pressure vessel component, which is kind of the key component in that in that reactor. So we've got a fair bit of activity going on with them. Uh, that Darlington site is looking very encouraging. Recently, uh, TVA announced a partnership where they are also inter- interested in the GE Hitachi SMR technology, and they are working with Ontario Power Generation. So the the two owners are working together there to figure out how to optimize the deployment of that technology. And we've also signed a deal with Hitachi to look at up to 10 reactors in Poland with a company called Symphilis Green Energy. And so that's very exciting because it's clear that the Poles are really in need of reducing their dependence on fossil fuels, and they're really looking to nuclear technology to do that.
1: Can you give a little bit of an overview of the technology? I know it's not your technology, customer technology, but you're your big stakeholder in the success of this. So I'm curious, how is it different from other light water small reactors that are out there? What what are some of the key design differences that you know as a as an outsider as an investor I'd want to know about to to differentiate?
2: Yeah, so specifically about the Geotachy technology, I think the the uh, interesting aspect of it is that it is an evolutionary design. So you know, as you noted noted in the, the name of the reactor, it's it's kind of the 10th the version of a reactor that they've been deploying and operating for uh, through their customers for, for many decades. So the fuel is the same as what's operating in, in other plants. And so the, the risk, I think, associated with that design is, is reasonably low. They've greatly simplified the design by reducing the number of plant systems that are needed through optimization of that design. So they've really reduced the concrete and steel, you know, which typically are big drivers of the cost of these reactors. And they've changed the way that the reactor is is protected from a safety perspective to make it even more safe. And that's reduced the, the cost of the overall reactor from what we can see. You know, obviously we're looking at it from a supply perspective of what we do. So, you know, they're probably better positioned to answer you know that question about the reactor, but that's what I see from my perspective.
1: What are the milestones with Darlington and TVA? You know, there's obviously commerciality milestones that need to be considered, but then there's also regulatory and licensing. Can you just help us understand what that profile looks like over the the next, I guess it's, we're talking about eight-ish years, maybe a little bit earlier for Darlington, right? That's 2028.
2: That's right. Yeah, OPG has said that they would like to have this SMR grid connected by 2028, by the end of 2028, so six years from now. So that's that's a good, I think, challenge, uh, although possible. I think they're they're hoping to be first, right, in, in North America with it with this SMR. Uh, TVA has not indicated what their timeline is, but you know, presumably they're they're going to follow closely with with OPG. I, I think the key timelines are when you think about that time to deploy. It got to get through finishing the detailed design of the reactor including the components, have to work through the, the licensing process. And so that is with the Canadian regulator, what we call the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. And GE is working through that right now in their what's called a vendor design review. And I understand that that's going reasonably well. They're hoping to be in construction in 2024 and then finish it in
1: 2028.
2: And when you uh, work backwards, that means that they have to be looking at some of the big components, things that we would be involved in right away.
1: These are two government entities, TVA and OPG, who are supporting this project and, you know, if we look in the in the US outside of TVA, you know, we've got this advanced reactor development program where there's money flowing into to those projects and and this is a bit different type of government support. How does that either help or hinder the the timeline and how are they looking at first of a kind cost here? Is that, you know, what's their threshold for this thing to be very expensive recognizing at the end of a kind ones will be much lower and they're just trying to seed, you know, a market so that it, it can be a kind of a government investment that pays off over time.
2: Yeah, so from my perspective, it's very helpful that you've got these two government owned utilities uh looking at this technology. They have that backing of the government that, you know, I think is is very solid. And they both have a mission to really lead in clean energy development and deployment. And, and I think that's you know key part of why they're they're focused on this reactor and working together. I think that when they think about the risk here, I think they are expecting that the first one's gonna be a bit more expensive. Right? And I think they both companies have experience with that in new tech- technologies, but they are looking at, my understanding, they are looking at building more than one, right? So they're expecting that the first one, maybe two could be more expensive, but then, you know, as you move into the third and fourth, they would expect that that cost would come in line. And, and I believe they, they view it as a competitive source of power with any other non-emitting base load type of power.
1: That's great. Maybe outside of the GE Hitachi design, what's your involvement in other SMR designs that are being contemplated? You know, when could we be hearing more about that?
2: Yeah, so uh, we've been fortunate to be involved with a number of them. We offer ourselves as a merchant supplier of products to these SMRs. And so we have been working with New Scale on their SMR. It's been announced that we started working with them uh, as early as 2019. We had contracts to look at the design of, of their components. And in that case, it's an integral component that has a reactor core and steam generation all in one component. And have been working on design for manufacturability with them. Pretty exciting. They've got their site identified at Idaho National Labs with a, a consortium of customers there to operate. And they've also recently announced that they've got a collaboration agreement with the, the, the nuclear utility in Romania. So they're, they're working on a European customer there. And so that, that is something that we're involved in. And then there's another um, advanced uh, type of reactor vendor that's, I think, I would say more advanced than either G or a new scale in the sense that they're they've gone to a different technology, a molten salt technology, which is Trust for Energy. And we've had contracts with them about that same time frame, 2019, to look at the design of their steam generator component and some other heat exchangers. And so have been working through that with them. So uh, I see that that type of reactor because it is a greater change from the light water reactors that we operate today, that it may take a little longer to get to market than the G Hitachi or, or NuScale product, but certainly think that that type of advanced reactor has got, a, got a, a good role to play at some point in the future.
1: So as we speak to investors about these small modular companies and, and the approach of doing things in a modular way, there's some concern. From investors that, well, hey, you've never done this. Like the industry's never done this. We've you can make all these components, and they're components that are similar to what we've used in conventional reactors, but we've never actually built a small modular reactor. So investors have a lot of battle wounds from cost overruns and time delays with nuclear plants. Like, what can you say that that gives you confidence being a supply chain participant in these things that you know we can actually pull these things off as advertised?
2: Yeah. So from my perspective on the risk, first of all, because these are smaller units, you know, the risk is lower, right? They're more factory built than the bigger units. And so, you know, a lot of the risk that we've seen in in large nuclear build projects has come in the field. Uh, and so the more proportion of that work that you can get in a factory the lower your risk is when we look at what we would do you know in terms of component design and manufacture are feeling quite comfortable with that right it's not very far from our uh, long experience in terms of designing and making components and so we don't see any significant risks in the components you know and I think that obviously the, the SMR vendors have to sort of respond to how they see the risk of the overall plant because that's not quite our domain but you know just from my perspective I think that what they've developed here is absolutely the right way to go and reducing the risk where you've got this kind of evolutionary design where much of the plant isn't so different than the current light water reactor fleet. It's just smaller. And so there is a lot of experience there and there's less first of a kind risk.
1: One of the other elements that comes up is just the sheer inflation that we've seen in everything. And there's, you know, there's been some questions as to you know whatever LCOE was promised or plant cost was promised. Now if you put new materials costs in and, and labor costs and so forth. It ends up being significantly higher. Do you have any perspective on that, and what you're seeing could filter through to the the end uh, cost for the customer?
2: Yeah, we have seen uh, some inflation for sure in, in some of the materials. You know, you typically get into some specialty alloys in, in these types of components, and so there has been a increase. Although we've seen some reductions recently, so we're we're seeing some reduction back towards where it was a year ago. So that's encouraging. But we're still in a bit of a higher price. I think that you know, nuclear obviously has to compete with another form of technology, and they're all using some pretty special materials. I think all of those are experiencing some level of inflation. So I think it is a you know, relatively speaking, a level playing field here, and I I, I think that it's still going to be a competitive technology if we can hit the targets that all these SMR vendors have set for themselves.
1: Well, thanks, John. Joe, let's move over to you. Maybe to kick it off, can you talk about the project Pele in more detail? And I guess, you know, where I'm most interested is can this be sort of a leader to something for the commercial market and and how is, how does the opportunity set look there? You know, what's the timeline with the project? And then what's the timeline for broader adoption? And what do you think the ultimate addressable market could be?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would say starting off with the one to five megawatts is the power range of, of the Pele program. So the, the big benefit of that is you have the ability to transport one to five megawatts, real high power dense systems in any remote application or off-grid application that would be desired. So unlike the SMR market, this wouldn't be for baseload power supply for the existing grid. This would be focused effort to add energy anywhere in the world. And so that it provides tactical capabilities capability to the Department of Defense. But in addition to that, there's a commercial aspect to that that's very interesting. And we've been uh, fielding a lot of questions and having conversations with potential commercial customers based on the fact that there are high energy prices throughout the world in remote locations. reactor that can fit in a standard ISO container, be transported, assembled, operated, and provide years of electricity without having a logistical tail, it's very appealing to those customers. And so, with the delivery of the pele reactor in the mid 2020s, in that operation, that proof of principle and proof of concept all happening in this decade, you know, we can see the commercial market emerging pretty rapidly. And so, BWXT has positioned ourselves pretty well, not just with the pele microreactor program, but with other commercial development through the advanced reactor demonstration program, which you had mentioned, and being able to couple technologies as purpose-built use case for microreactors for the commercial industry.
1: Is there a, a way to think about you know, the application outside of defense, where, you know, I'm thinking of some remote place where you might be burning diesel, which is very expensive. It's expensive to get the diesel. Like, right. can you help me think about what the cost competitiveness might look like? I mean, I, we're probably dealing with very high costs for the incumbent technology. So, what does that look like?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, not only are you burning diesel to create electricity, and a lot of that electricity is reconverted back to thermal energy. And so the real cost comparison comes from the high the high temperature that a high temperature gas reactor provides, in addition to the fact that you don't have to convert from carbon intensive program like our or process like diesel, coal, and natural gas, you would be able to convert directly from the reactor's thermal output to thermal energy on demand. And so that's one application. Another application would be the fact that the, a lot of these remote locations ha- have a need for centrally located small power source. And so being able to fit into that into that grid where a coal plant exists, like say up in Alaska, where a small coal plant exists, distributes energy to air force installation also distributes energy to the surrounding community, you come in with a clean energy source that's transportable that can provide thermal energy as well as electric, really helps with the cost basis. And then in when resource utilization or um, things like the oil sands and other at commercial applications require a very thermal intense project or process to heat water, create steam, things of that nature, once again, you can get back to a cost basis and efficiency standpoint of a nuclear reactor that provides a lot of benefit.
1: Okay, great. Maybe we'll shift over to fuel supply. And this is somewhat related to Pele, right? Because Pele is going to be using Triso. Can you just explain to us what Triso is just as a 101? Because we haven't talked about it yet on this podcast series in detail. And then, you know, what your, your involvement is.
0: Sure. Yeah, TRISO is a pretty unique fuel form that's been around for several decades. And in its current scaled up industrial capability here at BWXC, we have the ability to manufacture at a kilogram scale and be able to supply the future market. But the fuel form itself is tristructural isotropic fuel. That's where TRISO comes from. So the tristructural has essentially at its core would be a uranium kernel that's coated in carbon and coated in silicon carbide to be able to contain that uranium and also all the fission products during operation of the reactor and so what that allows you to do is to greatly reduce the amount of infrastructure that's required on site and so that the fuel can operate at a higher temperature than commercial power plants can uh, can operate today and then also you don't have to build a large containment surrounding the reactor pressure vessel, the containment is actually the fuel. And so over the last 15 years, BWXD in conjunction with our national labs, the DOE national labs, we've been manufacturing TRISO at scale for testing, and now we'll be manufacturing all the TRISO for the Pele program.
1: And there's some other variations of Triso. I think, you know, X Energy has their Triso X. Are you potentially part of that supply chain or are there other applications for Triso where, you know, you would be an intermediate participant?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Once again, like John mentioned, as a uh, as a supplier to the commercial market, BWXT is interested in that market as well, from a from a triso fuel manufacturing standpoint. And so there are other reactor designs other than Pele that use triso. Kairos is one of those reactor designs. And so the flexibility of the fuel is an enabling asset that the that new nuclear, advanced nuclear concepts have. And so we are not only interested in our own homegrown design, like the paleo program and our microreactor program, but also how we can be a supplier to the larger commercial market.
1: And one of the things about TRISO is it doesn't use low enriched uranium. We need to use high assay, low enriched, which is known as HALU. There's no HALU production in the U.S. right now, understandably, because we just don't have a market for it. But how, how do you see that evolving? I mean, there's $700 million in the IRA for HALU. But how much of a gating factor could that be to, to seeing this thing develop? And, and what's your interest or involvement in potentially making Halo yourselves?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, the immediate bridge that's required would be downblending, something that BWXC does. And then, like you mentioned, reestablishing the enrichment capability in the U.S. is something the Department of Energy is investing in through the $700 million you just stated. So BWXC over the last several decades and other companies have developed different centrifuge programs, and that's how we got the initial stockpile of HEU. Haloo hasn't been used in a commercial sense in uh, in a large scale in the U.S. Now that that demand is starting to reemerge and have a requirement, then BWXT is interested. And we just submitted a proposal recently to a DOE RFP to manufacture HALU for the future, both for the commercial and for the government markets.
1: What's different about making HALU versus LEU? And, and is there anything that if you have an incumbency in, in low enrichment, maybe you've got a, a step ahead advantage in, in doing HALU?
0: Yeah, I would say the biggest difference, the the technology is very similar, but the biggest difference would be the security protocols that have to exist in the different categories of licenses to to enrich above 5%. So from zero to five percent zero or you know, greater than zero being natural, all the way to five percent being LEU, five to twenty percent being high assay LEU or HALU, and then above twenty percent being HEU. In those different categories, the requirements for licensing and security are different, but the overall technology is quite similar.
1: Do you have a sense of what the $700 dollars from the government, what would that do? Like how much Halu production could we get out of that? And what sort of megawatts of generation would that support? Like if I if I had in my mind that we need X megawatts of, of Halu supply, you know, how far to that goal does this get us?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I would say the 700 million is about reestablishing capability in the United States. And then you would scale that up, you would scale that capability up to meet the demand. And so this is the 700 million represents the initial capability that's required to get the advanced reactors, get that market supplied with HALU fuel, be able to have facilitate the expanse of advanced reactors by having that initial supply. So you would essentially have to add more and more capability, but having that established, having supply chain up and ready to supply is the point of this initial
1: tranche of funding. Maybe just one last one for you as it relates to sort of um, moving off into outer space. Like can you talk about the, the opportunity for space technologies? You know, how can nuclear make a difference in in deep space travel and and what's the, you know, what's the near term movement on that right now?
0: Yeah, so over the last couple of years, there's been a resurgence of interest by NASA and now DARPA in space travel. And so NASA's program, nuclear thermal propulsion, now called space nuclear propulsion, was really focused on taking a nuclear-powered spacecraft, propulsion spacecraft from low Earth orbit all the way to Mars. And the enabling technology or what nuclear presents to the space market is that high that very high power density. So you have low mass, you have low volume, really high thrust, high specific impulse capability with nuclear that you don't have with current technology. And so in order to transit astronauts from low earth orbit, all the way to Mars and back, you would need that higher performing engine. And that's why nuclear thermal propulsion came about. Very similarly uh, with the DARPA program, the ability to transit within that cislunar volume is very important from a tactical capability for the U.S. in the, in the new space domain. Uh, so that would be propulsion. On the power side, the Artemis program, which is set to launch uh, here later this month, being able to create a real infrastructure on the moon to provide a gateway to outer space is really important to NASA, it's important to all humankind and so having a high powered dense, small, about 40 kilowatt electric power system on the moon would be an enabling capability to have astronauts and people living and working on the moon, and then also provide the infrastructure required to transit outside of our normal domain.
1: How specifically are you guys involved in that? And, and what's the, you know, what are the next milestones?
0: Yes, we have two contracts for nuclear thermal propulsion, one for uh, developing the fuel and and a few other materials for the reactor. And then we have a design contract as well to be able to complete conceptual design and then move on to the next stage of preliminary and final design for that system. So that's set to launch right now. The timeline is in the 2030s. Uh, We also are proposing to the DARPA-DRACO program for, and that will be awarded sometime later this year. And then for the fission surface power, for the lunar power supply, we have a contract as a subcontractor to Lockheed Martin. And in in that scope, we will be the fuel supplier, reactor designer, and reactor manufacturer as as that series progresses.
1: Awesome. To wrap it up with a couple more high-level type questions, and either of you feel free to respond where you see fit. How do you see kind of the competitiveness of, of nuclear versus other forms of generation? And, you know, I think many people are aware of the the sort of argument that nuclear is a good baseload power source, but the proponents of like the anti-nuclear proponents would say, well, hey, we can just use like smart grids and batteries and, and be able to handle high levels of intermittent, you know, solar and renewal or solar and wind where do you guys sort of see the counterpoint to that argument or, or how you have any thoughts on any of those topics? Yeah, Mark, from the commercial
2: perspective here, you know, I think that there is going to be renewable backed up by by storage. It's it's going to be a growing market. But I think when you compare that to nuclear, because you really have to take that intermittent uh, source with with energy together, right? To compare that total cost uh to nuclear. I think you do have a competitive technology in in nuclear power. And so, you know, from my perspective, I think you're going to see to decarbonize, you're going to see all of that being part of the mix. And nuclear's in North America is about 20% market share. I I think it'll probably hold on to that. May not change dramatically from that up or down, but, you know, there are retirements of nuclear units and there'll be new new ones built. And so, you know, that's how I think about that.
1: There's um, these small reactors are, positioning themselves to be load following, hopefully to be, you know, better integrated with, with the intermittency and then also changing demand that we have throughout the day. How do you see that? I've heard, you know, one argument is that if if you're load following, then, you know, you're not getting full utilization out of your facility because you've got portions of the day where you're, you know, running below capacity, but maybe help understand that argument. And if there's, if there's a reason that SMRs would be better suited for that than more of the conventional fleet.
2: Yeah so many of the SMRs are being designed to load fall somewhat you know so they're not they're not being designed to cycle all the way down to virtually zero power and backup but they are cycling around uh, you know their their peak power and, and i think there's an advantage there to operators to be able to do that but you know when you think about uh, what that means in terms of how they should be operated optimally i think that probably would want to run them near their peak power and use that power when there's less demand say at night uh, overnight to charge electric vehicles to look at uh, hydrogen production and other things and so my personal view is that you know a bit of load following is helpful, but they're going to need that base load power to to really remove carbon from our energy grid.
1: And then finally, you guys have a good. You sit in an interesting position where you have a view of the commercial nuclear market, and then also on the defense side. So I'm curious, you know, as we look at what's happened in China and Russia. I mean, China is a, a leader in nuclear power and and highly capable. They've already got SMR. China's got a couple SMRs that they're developing and when the western countries see the success that's happening in the east is there a bit of a arms race concern here that we're not keeping up or how how important is it that the western countries and are we seeing dollars put to work from the western countries to try to make sure that you know equally as capable on the on the nuclear side as as those eastern counterparts
2: yeah maybe i'll I'll give the commercial perspective and joe can can share his i would say that we are not seeing much competition from Chinese players in, in specifically what we do, for example, at the supply chain level. I don't think we're seeing a lot in, in Western nations in terms of uh, you know nuclear plant supply. There was a project that was developed in the UK. It's no longer got Chinese participation. So I, I think we're not seeing that develop. I think that uh, they are the Chinese are really putting a lot of investment into nuclear technology that is commercially viable. And so that's something that we're all mindful of. Of, but I, I feel like there's enough being spent by Western governments and, and specifically the US has got significant leadership here that we we will see commercially at least that will keep pace with the Chinese. Not as big a threat in from my perspective from the Russians.
1: Joe, anything to add there on the defense or space side?
0: Yeah, I would agree. And I think it extends into the defense and space side, right? Having that tactical capability and technology that's been so dependable over since really the 40s is important for us to reinvigorate. And that investment is showing up in big ways, both from NASA, from the Department of Defense. As the U.S. wants to continue to be a leader in new commercial technology, is also a leader in uh, new nuclear technology. I think if you triangulate those three things, nuclear, commercial, and defense, you start to see the, the U.S. start to lead more and more and more in investment. And that's why you're starting to see the reemergence of a lot of these projects. And so looking at what other countries are doing, especially China and Russia, has prompted the U.S. to, to take uh, nuclear more seriously, Of as you can see through recent
1: programs. Well, super, guys. I think we got to leave it there, but this has been, been really enlightening. I wasn't aware of all the capabilities at BWXT until we kind of got into this process. So I really appreciate your time. And thanks so much. We'll, we'll look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark.
0: Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.